in the realm of partnering with patients and families to improve health and health care, it's a lot easier to express the aspiration and understandably a lot harder to do the actual work. True collaborations aren't built overnight, and demonstrating what they look like in real time and real organizations is still in the early stages. Having both the language to enrich understanding, such as co-production, and examples to point to can help a great deal. So that's our mission on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome everyone to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live, then biweekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. This is the third WIHI program this year looking at innovative ways to do with patients, not to them. We explored what matters and minimally disruptive medicine in January, and you might check out those shows on the WIHI archive page if you miss them, or you can find them on iTunes. Now we're about to add to the roster with an outstanding panel, and we're going to talk about co-production. I'm going to introduce everyone in just a moment, and we've got a full crowd here and a lot of interested participants. So here's IHI's John Gothier with just a few reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. I just have a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right side of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you you know all about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the Send To Bar when Madge opens up the floor for questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know we have their number on screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a very quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions about, at about the halfway mark of the hour. We welcome tweeting during and after the program, and thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can involve others in the conversation. So here go my introductions. A reminder that there are longer, more detailed uh, bios for all these folks on our website and also on the slides that you'll see. On the phone from New Hampshire, I want to welcome Kathy Sabadosa. She's senior researcher. Director at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. She currently executes the National Quality Improvement Initiative for the U.S. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. She engages healthcare professionals, parents, and individuals with cystic fibrosis at about 117 accredited sites. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Okay, fabulous. Also joining by phone and based at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, we have Sarah Myers, Executive Improvement Director for the Improve Care Now Learning Health System. 
that's focused on pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. In this role, Sarah develops and implements innovative strategies aimed at the meaningful engagement of all partners in the Improved Care Now community, which you'll hear more about. Welcome, Sarah. All right, Sarah's on mute, but well, uh, we know you're there. We can oh, see. Thank you. No, I'm here. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> Loud and clear. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah knows these next two phone people well. We've got uh, Julie Bass, a staff gastroenterologist at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, who has served as the medical director of the Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program at the Children's Mercy, I'm sorry, as well as the Children's Mercy Lead Physician for Improved Care Now. Now since 2012. Hi, Julie. Hello. Thank you. Fabulous. And Julie works with Jamie Hicks, who's a registered nurse by background and the mother of three children, one of whom was first diagnosed with Crohn's disease at the age of four. Jamie is joined at the hip with Julie Bass as a parent partner in Improve Care Now and leads improvement initiatives for IBD care for the Patient and Family Advisory Council at Children's Mercy. Welcome so much, Jamie. All right, so we're going to advise. We got a little echo, Jamie, of your computer. So just see if you can't um, turn down your volume or mute or do something on your laptop. I apologize. Uh, if that's confusing, you can communicate with John uh, Gothier, the WebEx admin, directly uh, for further guidance on that. But thanks, Jamie. So glad you're here. And here in the studio with me, first right across the way here, Maren Batalden is Associate Chief Quality Officer and Associate Director of Graduate Medical Education for Quality and Safety at the Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Maren is clinically active as as a practicing hospitalist and is engaged in teaching both medical students and residents. Hi, Maren. Hello, great to be here. All right, next to Maren is IHI's Executive Director, Christina Gunther-Murphy, who oversees IHI's Person and Family-Centered Care Focus Area. Today's show began with a discussion between Christina and Maren, and Christina will be helping us out mostly during Q&A. Welcome, Christina. Thanks, Matt. All right. Okay, we're going to get right underway. Uh, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to, as always on WIHI, because we know you guys can take it, we're going to move through a lot of material. Um, it's some Somewhat warp speed, uh, but uh, we uh, I, we think it all makes sense and hang together. And I want to remind everybody: you can download slides, uh, which will help uh, kind of piece it all together even after the program. And if you're joining by phone, uh, you can get those slides by emailing info at ihi.org. So, Maren, you and others uh, penned an important article in the past uh, year in September on co-production. It was in uh, BMJ Quality and Safety. And there's been a lot of interest in the piece and the concept. And I'm curious why you think that's going on and what's important about these words, co-production. Welcome again. Well, it's actually exciting to me that the article and the concept has generated a lot of interest. I would say as a practicing clinician and as a person who's charged with responsibility for improvement in my healthcare system, the concept has actually been pretty transformative for me personally. So in some ways, I understand why it might be powerful for others as well. This, the concept of co-production is, is actually pretty simple. It comes originally from economic theory and has been described by social scientists in many fields, political science, sociology, business, public administration. 
it, it starts really with the notion that producing goods is different than producing services. And this is, this is a fourth grade social studies concept. There are a variety of ways in which producing goods is different than producing services. But most importantly for our purposes, goods are produced by some sort of manufacturing process that's actually independent of the consumer. So a good manufacturing process might include market research and might design its product based on an understanding of the consumer's needs and desires, but the actual manufacturing process is independent of the consumer. In healthcare service, however, health outcomes that are created are necessarily co-created. So my doctor might prescribe me a pill, but I have to fill the script and take the medicine. My doctor might be able to help me understand what's causing my nausea, but I have to get in touch with her somehow, and I have to explain what's going on in a way that she understands. So in some ways, the idea is as plain as the nose on your face, that health outcomes, both good and bad, are not created by health professionals or by the healthcare system, acting independently, but they're, they're always co-created with patients. So, of course, the, the degree to which patients and health professionals are true partners in this work varies quite a bit. So in the primary care clinic, when we're focused on managing my diabetes, I have quite a bit of agency about what and how much I eat and how I will exercise and how often I'll check my blood sugar. In the operating room, when I'm having my appendix removed, I'm anesthetized, and most of the agency belongs to the members of my surgical team. But as soon as I come to without my appendix in the PACU, I start to reclaim some of my agency. People are very different from each other, too, of course, in so many ways. They differ in their capacity and their desire to assume an active role in creating these health outcomes. I work in a safety net system that cares for many people for whom it might actually be pretty radical to imagine that they have an important role to play in creating their health outcomes. If you imagine that blue is patient agency and green is health professional agency, you can play with the shapes over time to imagine the way in which uh, the agency and the dynamics of the partnership might change uh, over time or in different situations. But the fact remains that health outcomes are always, to some degree, co-created by patients and families working together. So as simple as this idea is, it's actually really not the dominant culture within healthcare. My dad actually spotted this billboard in uh, Minneapolis, which shows a pregnant woman with her hand on her belly. And the text says, we can handle everything except naming your baby. It's an advertisement for the uh, maternity services at the Masonic Children's Hospital. And as anyone who has ever had a baby or loved someone who had a baby, you know what a preposterous promise this actually is. I, I believe that the dominant culture within healthcare continues to be sort of this notion that value is created by health professionals and somehow pushed to consumers. I suspect it might be closer to the truth to see healthcare value as something that is largely created by people seeking well-being somehow pulling assistance from health professionals. In the article that my co-authors and I uh, published in September, we drew a conceptual model that uh, sort of describes this idea about uh, co-production, and it puts in the center the relationship between patients and health professionals with varying degrees of partnership in that, uh, in that relationship. But this relationship sits within the healthcare system, uh, which sits within the wider community. And one of the things I like about the picture is that it sort of suggests different places where 
if you wanted to improve the quality of the partnership, you might focus your efforts. You could focus on the behaviors and the dispositions of patients and professionals, or you could focus at the level of the system itself, trying to do things that might enhance the capacity of patients and professionals to partner together. So for me, this idea has been like a new pair of glasses that allows me to see what happens every day in healthcare in new ways. I believe that this framework has important implications that many, many people are already working on, whether or not they use the term co-production to describe what they're doing. So I see it when I see efforts to improve patient health professional communication and making health professionals into better listeners. I see it when I look at efforts to empower patients to speak up and ask questions. I see it when uh, I see efforts to measure patient experience and turn it into something that matters to both health professionals and the health system. I see it when uh, the, the health system tries to improve and diversify ways to allow patients to access the health system with same-day appointments and electronic visits and group visits. I see it when I see patient family advisory councils giving guidance to systems trying to be more responsive to patients uh, or in informal networks of patients like the Cambridge-based patients like me uh, phenomenon. So um, I guess I would say that sometimes our efforts within the healthcare system to be better partners with our patients look a little bit like the efforts of manufacturers trying to get customer input into furniture design. So the nuance here is recognizing that whether we intentionally work to improve the partnership or not, our outcomes in healthcare are always co-produced. And recognizing that has changed the way that I care for patients every day and has changed the way I started thinking about how to make care better in our system. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Mara. And I really, really appreciate a reminder of the link to the article on that issue about being intentional uh, or um, kind of, as I, I think at some point I wrote, naturally occurring mm -hmm. <laughs> co-production co and what can happen. I think that gives a nice, also wide range of options of where you can jump in and maybe we'll get into that in, in uh, the, the Q&A. Um, so thanks, Marin, for setting the stage here. I want to turn next to Sarah Myers. Uh, Sarah, Improved Care Now out of Cincinnati Children's, where you are, actually strikes me as one of the most intentional examples of co-production going on in the U.S. right now, um, how, particularly how it's evolved. So tell us about Improved Care Now, thumbnail sketch, and... Um, you know, uh, teeing off of some of the things Marin has laid out, um, kind of what sorts of things you feel kind of embody uh, co-production in that effort. Thanks, Sarah. Are you there? I think we have to unmute Sarah. Oh, can you, yep. can you hear me? You're there now. Okay, okay thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. Yep. So thank you, Madge. So Improved Care Now is a network of 86 care centers working together to improve outcomes for pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. We started in 2007 as a small improvement collaborative with just seven centers. At our first learning session, we are in fact a room of about 30, almost all clinicians. So fast forward to 2016, and we've become really an enduring learning health system, focused on outcomes, building community, and learning from data. This system, or the word that I really prefer, community, has had some exciting success. You know, the remission rate of kids in the network registry, which now number about 25,000, has increased from under 60% to 80%. Centers have achieved this by applying good QI to building reliable chronic care systems that focus on things like pre-visit planning and good self-management support. But a success that we're really most proud of is that we're no longer a community of just clinicians. 
now, when we meet in person at our community conferences, our twice-a-year gatherings, I look out at the room full of people and see 300 people, including clinicians, parents, and patients, and researchers. You'll hear from Julie and Jamie shortly about how those clinicians, patients, and parents co-producing improvements has taken off at individual care centers, but I'll share just a few observations from the network level that I think have really helped set the stage for this. So from my vantage point as an improvement director in the network, it really seems to come down to a couple of things, an organic part, the people, a more intentional part, the structure and processes, and also a little bit of some softer yet really important stuff like trust. So people first. So we're very fortunate that our early successes attracted and set up conditions for the involvement of some patient and parent collaborators who are not only motivated, of course, to improve their own health care and get better, but also had the skills to co-produce real improvements for many and the motivation to do so. These people are students, teachers, lawyers, business owners, et cetera, and in the end, they're also parents and patients with a collective hundreds of years of experience and expertise in providing technical hands-on IBD care. How many clinicians can say that? Um, some can, but, you know, that's a lot of experience. So some specific examples. So a parent of a child cared for at one of the centers in the network works for a large school system and was part of their grant review process. She worked with our then nascent Improve Care Now Research Committee, of which she is a member, to build its research project application review process. Last year, several patients created an ostomy toolkit that's now helping other patients navigate what frankly can be one of the most challenging experiences for a kid with IBD. They asked clinicians for input into their project versus the other way around. And one young patient, Zach, found that inserting an NG tube was really scary, so he figured it out first, and then he sat down and made a how-to video for other kids to make it less scary. The video spread to countless kids throughout our network and helped them. So our system hadn't created this for Zach. He needed this. It hadn't created it. So he, who was all of nine, did it himself. So even more recently, our patient partners sat down and made what, what they're calling trading cards so others in the network can quickly reference their skills, story, and interests and identify ways to work together with them. No one had asked these patients to do these things. They saw voids and they filled them. They've been really generous with their time and talent, and in doing so, have helped us improve services, so speaking to some of Marin's comments about services that impact our whole community. So in addition to making space for people to co-produce, becoming intentional about structure and process has also been really important. So those examples I just shared with you, a lot of them happened organically, but at some point you get bigger and you need to make sure people are aligned, that like-minded people find each other, and you can track all of these activities so people can navigate them. At first, we had intentionally tried not to fit patients into a mold. We didn't want to put them into a box on the org chart or pressure them to work in a certain way. But a couple of years back, they actually came to us and said, can we create more structure and accountability? We want to be seen as official in the network and have processes guiding our work. So we challenged them to create a structure, and they sure did. Our parent working group and patient advisory council are now formalized prominently on our org chart, and they contribute members to network committees. Indeed, our strategy council has representation from all stakeholders in the community and is now co-led by a physician and a parent. Some of this is best manifested by our community conferences now. Patients and parents used to come and sort of sit around the edges and do a lot of storytelling and listening, but now that there's structure to their involvement, they're co-producing the conference with us. We have patients in three weeks leading three sessions at the next one that they developed and they'll participate in many others. They were part of planning and they held themselves to the same expectations as everybody else in the community. 
And finally, before we turn it over to the real experts, Jamie and Julie, I just want to acknowledge there are challenges where things like softer things like trust come in. It can be really hard work and there isn't a roadmap for these new relationships. Many of us already did think about patients as partners in a pretty abstract way, but we also thought of them as customers that we had to work for. But now we're seeing it's about working with them so they can really help us get things right. And that's disconcerting. You know, we need to trust we're still needed. We need to have open conversations about our constraints and say, hey, I didn't get this right. Help me do better next time. And finally, our shortcomings are much more visible when patients and parents are kind of looking in and on the inside. But when we're open about them, we all get better together, which has been a really neat experience to watch unfold. And there are plenty of other challenges that I'm sure I'll be able to share during the Q&A. But I think um, that's sort of a, a bird's eye view of how things look like at a complex network level. Thanks, Sarah. You met the challenge of the time slot <laughs> beautifully. And I do hope people will start thinking of questions uh, to ask this wonderful group here, uh, panelists, um, you know, what comes of all of these amazing processes and very thoughtful ways of going about this, you know, um, uh, any kinds of results, uh, you know, where things are sort of improving some of the challenges. So, uh, yes, Sarah, more from you during Q&A. All right. I want to, we're now going to open up the lines for Julie and Jamie. They are in two different locations for today's program, but um, I... I, I told them that I hope they wouldn't take uh, any offense if I referred to them as a dream team. Uh, it's in no way me meaning to make light of any health issues that have brought the two of you together. But Julie and Jamie, uh, all right, I'm going to start with Julie first, okay? Uh, so Julie, kick us off, and then we'll bring uh, Jamie into it. So tell us about this partnership uh, and what you're working uh, on at uh, Children's Mercy out there um, in, in Missouri. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to share our experience with the group and how we've really learned to value this parent-family partnership. Um, about four years ago, I took on this new role as uh, Director of IBD and Lead Physician for Improved Care Now from Children's Mercy. And I honestly felt pretty overwhelmed in searching for some guidance and how to navigate this new QI world. And um, finding a parent partner to, was actually the perfect answer to um, my anxiety at that time. It, as it, inviting Jamie to join our team, it really helped guide our focus and our priorities. So it started with a conversation in uh, 2012 that I had with uh, Jamie when her son, uh, Colson, was in the hospital, actually. I um, asked her to join our team, honestly, with a pretty minimal expectation of what our partnership would ultimately work look like, but I had high hopes because her passion was pretty obvious to me. Um, I asked her to attend meetings and participate in discussions with our healthcare team regarding patient care for our patients with IBD. We have um, about 550 to almost 600 patients at our center. And um, I quickly realized as Jamie um, joined us that our lack of a parent perspective prior was what had really limited our ability to impact meaningful changes in our patient population. What we thought as a medical team were significant concerns for our patients prior were actually really minor in comparison to what the reality of what our uh, parents shared with us about what IBD patients can struggle with on a daily basis. So, Jamie and I communicate regularly and thankfully very seamlessly. We have an ongoing dialogue that helps to focus our priorities. Um, 
the parent presence on our team really creates a sense of accountability that was really not there prior um, to our partnership. Um, the conversations and a parent present really allows us to um, have improvement changes in a lot of different areas as we've you know, created new educational materials for our patients. We've worked on our new diagnosis process, the visibility of our program, um, communication via portal and IBD listserv, uh, having a dedicated IBD phone line for our patients. And Jamie will give you uh, an example here shortly, um, a little bit more specifically. I believe our work is unique because we do allow transparency in our discussions that Sarah had referenced earlier. Our parent gr- group really needs to understand the limitations and the challenges of our healthcare system. At the same time, our parents also need to be transparent with us for our work to move forward together. Um, and I suspect that transparency may be one of the biggest challenges that other centers who don't have um, patients and families involved in their work is, might be one of the issues that is um, scary or, a, a, you know, potentially a setback in, in how people move forward. Um, but lastly, I think finding the right parent to lead our, our work has been an absolute must for an effective partnership. Jamie really stood out to me because of her passion, her never-ending questions, and her ability to see the bigger picture beyond her individual experiences. That last characteristic, in my opinion, is probably the most important in choosing an effective leader, and it's likely the toughest characteristic to find in a parent um, with a child with chronic disease, but purposely setting aside individual experiences within our parent group has allowed our group to move and make impact bigger changes for our whole patient population. So in summary, I just want to highlight that accountability that our parent partner has really provided for our work, the importance of transparency in our partnership um, both ways, and then the necessity of finding the right parent to lead the work. And we're so thankful um, that Jamie is that parent for us, and um, I'll turn it over to her. Okay. Thank you so much, Julie. All right, Jamie, I think we've got uh, all the technical <laughs> things. We're ironing them out. Um, so glad you're, you're with us. So uh, pick up uh, where Julie uh, just left off and, and, and just tell us, tell us, give us some context in, in, in uh, you've got a lot of different skills and vantage points for, for all of this. So uh, we, we uh, are, are thrilled that you're with us today on WHI. Thanks. Thank you so much. So I am very honored to be here today. Um, it's incredibly exciting from my perspective to hear any conversation around the topic of doctor and patient collaboration and co-production. So as a mom, when I heard the words lifelong disease from my child, the world definitely tilted. I dove in at that time as lay researcher, advocate, guardian of my family's healthcare experiences for sure. I wanted best care at each visit from each provider. And I found myself asking, okay, what is best care? Who gives best care? How do I find best care? And in many ways, care for IBD felt like it was highly dependent on sort of where we went, where we lived or could travel to, who we talked to, kind of what magic formula of words we said and other confusing factors. So early in our journey, we managed to find Dr. Bass, whom I think is as good as they get for IBD care. And when she then asked if I would be interested in joining this quality improvement team to focus on improving care for IBD kids, 
it became a significant shift in focus for me. I think so often I felt helpless, but now I was given this opportunity to act rather than to be acted upon, and that felt huge. So I do think it's true that parents of children diagnosed with a chronic disease assume that they have substantial input already. And I think it's true. I think that's a great example of collaboration between one family and one provider. But I believe that's different than what we're at, we're talking about today. So in this case, Dr. Bass and this QI team invited me to become intentional about improvements that could impact most families at most visits across most providers in our program. Our team turned theory, kind of the idea of maybe this is a good idea, into action, which is, yes, it's a good idea, let's try it. And we did this very quickly. So a particular example today, a little more than a year ago, I asked if we could expand this partnership that we had beyond one parent with one perspective to a group of parents. And as is typical for our QI team, everyone discussed the possibility and decided to test the idea. We found fast and enthusiastic interest from parents and formed a parent advisory council really fairly quickly. During one of our parent-only brainstorming meetings, another parent on the council expressed the need for a more formal discharge plan following COVID. And so as a parent council, we discussed what is important to parents and families as they leave clinic visits. I then took that idea that we had developed and even an example form to the QI team. The idea and the template went through several iterations and a back-and-forth look by both the medical team and the parent council, and eventually the result is a form available to all providers at Children's Mercy for discharge planning and, in turn, improving care for all families seen at Children's Mercy. So as a parent, I'm very proud to be a part of creating a tool for families I truly believe will change their care. But then, Dr. Bass said, almost in passing one day, you know, this form has changed the way I practice medicine in my clinics for the better. And that comment was truly a game changer for me in realizing what this partnership was all about. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I know this re represents a lot of time, many months and years of work. Uh, so we, we're just getting, you know, 30,000 feet up here in some of the slides. So I hope we can, uh, get into this a little bit more. Thank you so much, uh, Jamie and Julie both. I want to remind everybody that on the bio slides that we share, that we post to the website and also that you can download, you're prompted to do so when you get off the program today, uh, you can have email addresses for all our guests today, and that's an opportunity to follow up with any questions or uh, issues that are on your mind that we may not get to in the hour. All right, I'm going to now turn to Kathy Sabadosa. Um, also a parent and researcher uh, at the sharp end of designing a cystic fibrosis care model. Uh, also very much leaning into co-production. So, Kathy, you're on, and I want to tell everybody who's joining us, uh, thanks for your attention and your interest in this topic, and we'll get to Q&A in probably about five minutes. Thanks. Kathy, go ahead. Great. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit today about the CF story. Um, some of you may know the Cystic Fibrosis uh, Foundation has been supporting basic research, drug discovery, drug development, and clinical care for people with CF. And at the opening that you learned, I was working, uh, I've been working for the last uh, 12 years with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation on creating quality improvement, um, doing quality improvement work with the care system 
across the country. Um, we subsequently published our journey of improving care for people with cystic fibrosis in the BMJ quality and safety. And um, However, we don't want to rest um, with the results that we've gained over the last 10 years. We're looking forward, looking ahead, and wanting to advance um, our care model to create better care and for people with cystic fibrosis. We're thinking about turning our care center network that's been the crown jewel of the Cystic Fibrosis um, Foundation for years into a learning health network. Uh, we wrote about co-production early on in our in our journey uh, of quality improvement, but now we want to take it to a new level. We want to create a learning health system similar to what the Improved Care Now uh, folks have done for IBD. So in thinking about that, we've come across a conceptual model that we think is going to really drive turning our care model into a learning health system. You can see at the center of this model, there's the partnership. It's where people with CF and their providers meet. Two experts come together to create um, a health experience. But there's a lot of information and data that's fed into that experience. You can see um, there's electronic medical record environment. There's a quality improvement collaterals that happen. Lots on the care team side. But there's also the flip side. Patients and families, what do they bring to this relationship? What do they bring to this experience? What do they track about their health and their personal health records and on their devices at home? Who are they talking to? How can we learn from curated networks of patients and families that are out there in the social media space? How do we bring all this data and information into the point of care? Um, and how do we build this, bring this into our registry in a way that's meaningful and is going to produce optimized health? So this is what we've begun to visualize for the CF community, bringing all these pieces together. Right now, what I'm most excited about is we've actually created a dashboard that's become the focal point and the jump, jumping point for this relationship, bringing all of these data elements together from the electronic medical record environment, from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation patient registry, and patient reported outcomes. Why do people want to come to clinic? What are their health priorities? What gets in the way of them achieving the health that they want to achieve to live a long and healthy life? We're bringing all these to one spot to really open up a conversation and build a new and trusting relationship so that data is transparent, conversations are rich and meaningful to both providers and people with cystic fibrosis. We're excited we've just picked a vendor partner, actually, to take this electronic, and we're really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds across our community. So um, I'm just excited to see what's coming up in the future around the conversations to co-produce better care. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Kathy. Really appreciate your being part of this conversation, too. All right. We're going to go to chat in just a second, but I want Marin to, now that we've listened to a number of people and we have been in the realm of pediatrics, uh, not surprisingly, um, but Marin wanted to just make a bit of a bridge uh, to thinking about also adults and sort of extracting a little bit uh, the application, for, certainly for the adult population as well. Yeah, I think in many ways it's not surprising that some of the most sophisticated models for co-production with these infrastructures that are really impressive that we're learning about in both inflammatory bowel disease and cystic fibrosis, it's not surprising that they've emerged from pediatrics where parents are really ready to be good partners for their children who have uh, chronic health conditions. But I practice as a hospitalist, so I see adults in an acute care setting, and I'm finding that this construct of co-production 
without any infrastructure around it, is changing the way that I work with patients one-on-one. -on -one. It used to be when I got a call from the emergency department about a patient that needed to come into the hospital, I would just start taking notes. And now I ask, does the patient want to come into the hospital? And it turns out that many times we have not fully explored the risks and benefits and the alternatives with the patient in a way that actually honors their preferences. The same thing at the time of discharge. Even though had you asked me two years ago if I was a collaborative clinician, I would have said yes. I thought that I was a good partner. But somehow this framework has actually opened my eyes to new opportunities to, to think together with people about the decisions that we make. It's not, it's not just I know when you need to be discharged from the hospital. I find myself actually discharging people that left my own devices I might not have discharged. And I find myself not discharging people that left my own devices I might have discharged. So it has lots of implications, even in the micro, in sort of the microdynamics of an individual clinician uh, patient partnership. Thanks, Marin. Um, John's going to tell you uh, about chat, and I want to also invite people in the chat. I'm curious who many of you are who have joined today, kind of where you'd even locate yourself uh, in this uh, partnering that we're talking about, and also if you can relate to what Marin just said, which is sort of thinking of oneself as collaborative, but maybe not so much, actually, in some of the profound ways we're talking about now. I'm wondering if you've had any of those aha moments uh, for yourself. Uh, so, John, uh, just a quick reminder about use of chat and asking questions for everyone. Yep. Uh, please send all your chats and comments and questions to all participants in the Send To Bar down at the bottom of the chat. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Brad is asking about how do we engage with community, patient, and family partners who are challenged by lack of resources um, and he's saying, and capacity. Um, and uh, I, I, I want to just relate that question. Uh, Christina will remember this, that this came up a bit when we were talking about what matters and some of our um, folks in Scotland who were um, also discovering and, and also uh, at the other health system that uh, was part of that call, sometimes asking that question, what matters, people have no idea how to answer that because nobody's actually asked them before or it, it just may not, feeling empowered uh, to even say, may not have have been a part of that. So um, I anyway, and anybody who has some uh, thoughts on that, um, maybe I'll, I'll jump to Sarah and then maybe to Christina as well. Sarah? Yeah, thank you. Am I unmuted? You are. Okay. Yeah, so this, this question comes up a lot because, as you can imagine, in a pretty complex and diverse learning health system that has 86 different centers, they are all working with patients and families who, um, as the question says, has very different a range of resources, a range of educational levels, a range of capacity. And some of those centers truly do struggle with, you know, how can we possibly co-produce with patients who have so much going on and we, we don't even know how to start the conversation with them. And it sounds really trite and really simple, but so much of it, you know, reflecting on what you just said, is really about digging in and starting to ask the questions and really get to know them as people. Um, you know, we do an activity prior to each of our community conferences where we, we sort of ask the centers to do sort of a structured interview with patients, and they ask the very direct question of, you know, what are your goals of care? So things about their individual care, but also what are some ways that you think 
that patients and families can partner with us and co-produce with us to make these things better? And what are some ways that you specifically as a family, given your individual situation, can do that? So I think that's one really important piece of it. I think another one, um, just the one other quick way to answer this is that sometimes that lack of resources, um, there's all kinds of resources, but one of the big lacks of resources that we sometimes see is just kind of the skills around quality improvement to make them feel like they really can contribute to these projects. Because as many on this call know, quality improvement, there's a lot of jargon, there are a lot of things to learn, and it can feel incredibly overwhelming. So one of the things we've taken on to kind of deal with the disparity in those resources is thinking about how can we create tools, curriculum, and opportunities for patients and families that are lacking those resources to get up to speed and understand the language that we're speaking so that they can dive in and start to sort of have their imagination sparked about, okay, I get what these PDSAs are all about. I understand that, you know, maybe I can work on something um, that uses this model. And so we're working on tools, um, doing parent boot camps at our community conferences, and testing some different ways to even the playing field at least around those resources around quality improvement. Thank you very, very much. Christina, maybe I'll, I'll turn to you because there was yet another question also about this concern about people not feel, patients and families maybe not feeling at the ready and aren't used to being uh, kind of activated, uh, that anyone actually wants to hear what they have to say, frankly. Uh, and I know yeah. that must kind of uh, come across all the things that you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just three thoughts. I think one is just that sometimes we hold up a lot of assumptions that we actually need to test. So we have theories that people aren't activated or we have theories that people may not be ready for these conversations. And those might be valid theories, but I think sometimes we hold those theories in our head instead of actually trying them and getting out. And this is where I think PDSA cycles can be fabulous to say, actually, my prediction is I don't think that they're going to engage. So that's one. I think the second is are we actually asking people to say, how would you want me to ask this question? If I wanted to really get at the heart of what was important to you, for example, in the case of what matters, how would I ask that? So asking people, even if they aren't particularly engaged in a clinic, walking around saying, how would you want this? So I think really kind of just trying to get the words that resonate for people as opposed to the words that might make sense for us. Um, so I guess those are probably, the third is in the same variant. Those are the two things that I think sometimes we need to test those assumptions. Thanks, Christina. Maren, you wanted to say something about this? Yeah. yeah. And I think I would also, I would make a distinction between uh, inviting people to serve on quality improvement teams and inviting people to partner in their own uh, in their own health and well-being. So I think that they're, they're two different tiers there. Uh, and it's certainly the case that uh, not everybody is ready to serve on a quality improvement team for any number of different reasons. But I think it's it's important to, to remember the opportunity for this conversation taking place at the level of the individual kind of clinical encounter. Okay. Um, let me ask um, kind of Julie and or Jamie, um, we, we you, you're presenting a, a very exciting partnership, and I don't know how many Jamies are out there, like Jamie herself or Julie, <laughs> um, the, the sort of activated clinician, uh, such as uh, Marin is, and and others uh, that we're even hearing from on the chat. 
somebody has asked in the chat, what about um, on the sort of provider side? A lot of hesitancy, uh, kind of strange new world here of uh, being part of these kinds of teams, participating, sort of getting what this language is all about and what this looks like. Uh, maybe, Julie, I'll start with you, and Jamie, feel free to chime in. Julie? Yes, um, we have about 20 providers at our institution that all take care of IBD, so we are ranging with a lot of different uh, personalities and acceptance in terms of, you know, working closely with parent partners, and Jamie actually leads now uh, our parent family advisory council of 13 parents, so um, lots of different ideas and um, opinions all involved, and most recently, it's been really exciting. We invited Jamie to come speak at one of our IBD provider meetings, so all of the physicians and nurse practitioners and fellows that take care of our IBD patients, and um, I, honestly, I was a little bit nervous because I'm really comfortable with having Jamie come to our meetings regularly, and you know, she, we really see her as an active part of our team, but it was new for some other providers that don't have that close regular contact, but the feedback that I got from a lot of my partners um, was was really um, exciting to see that that you know just that hey this this is really a great thing to move us all forward to ultimately improve. We're, we're working on standardizing care because it can be such a challenge with so many different providers and just making sure every patient receives the exact same resources and um, opportunities. And that that is another idea that had come from one of the parent meetings recently. Um, so it's there is some hesitancy definitely because um, you do have this kind of blurring of crossing that professional, you know, because we're letting them into our system to see what our challenges are and what things that we need to work through and why not everyone has the perfect experience every time and we're all human and mistakes happen and so it's it's tough challenging questions and conversations at times but um it, it's it's been really exciting to see um slowly that we're breaking down that barrier, you know, between the patient and, and uh, families and the, our, the providers and, and really working together to, to figure out how to provide the best care. And I'm sure Jamie has more to add to that. Thank you, Julie. Jamie, any thoughts? Well, just to that end, I would say that, um, that prior to taking the step forward with engaging with a patient or a parent, um, it it is assumed that maybe we need to figure out a script and kind of have down what we want that conversation to look like so that we can make sure that things um, have a positive outcome in the end. And I think that that we can maybe set aside some of those expectations on ourselves and providers can potentially set aside some of that expectation on themselves and, and just simply try it um, without the fear of what happens if and then trying to make sure all of those ifs are solved before they ever take the step of having the conversation. I think that it, it's probably time to just have the conversation and um, and then see what some of those ifs actually turn out to be and which ones were, were very strong assumptions that might not have been correct. Great. Thank you very much. Kathy Sabadosa, I wanted to bring you uh, in as well. I was thinking about Marn's comment a little earlier uh, in the program about 
um, sort of that recognition that, you know, we're co-producing whether we call it that or not, and that sometimes very simple, what seem like simple, benign, you know, statements or questions in your engagement uh, with a patient or family member can suddenly change the whole rules of the game. I think about the Leadership Alliance here, Christina, and changing the balance of power, and almost simple ways that that can happen. And I'm curious whether that's something that you're focused on and have you experienced that yourself? Um, you know, Jamie found her way to Julie, um, but I guess probably went through some <laughs> providers. She wasn't getting quite that, that kind of uh, engagement with. Uh, what about for yourself and what are some simple uh, things that people can say that can suddenly change the whole relationship? Um, I think, you know, in cystic fibrosis care and in my, in my personal experience, it's really about um, allowing me to come in with questions, opening up an agenda for a conversation that's important to me. I think looking at the bigger context of my life, my care, where I live, and how I, you know, how my, actually my son with cystic fibrosis takes care of himself every day. You know, so understanding me as a whole person is very important. And then bringing in to an encounter what's on my mind. Um, opening opening uh, an encounter with our clinician that says, what's on your mind today? What brings you here today? Very open-ended questions about um, why I came in and what's important to me and what's, what are priorities in my life right now, essentially, in our family life. And then I think also, too, on the other side of that, um, and really drilling down on what are my priorities for my health? You know, cystic fibrosis is a time-consuming treatment regime, you know, that I as an adult or my son is an emerging adult, you know, how much how much time do I want to spend on my care versus how much of my life do I want to give up to do it? So it's striking that balance and being honest and transparent with the providers. And I think once um, the provider opens that door for that conversation, that's when the real work gets done. You know, the real honest dialogue about, you know, I want to go on that ski trip this weekend and I might have to skip doing a few you know, few hours of therapy because I really want to be with my friends and out there exercising. So, you know, and, and finding that balance with a clinician is really important. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, that's great. No, yeah. I really appreciate it. Those are very, very helpful contextual things. Marin and maybe John, we could um, show some of those uh, our kind of bonus uh, slides that we have here. Some others about examples of, of co-production. Um, Marin, um, I'm curious whether you, uh, somebody had asked a question in the chat about, uh, adolescent, uh, mental health. And you were, we were talking about, you know, moving out of strict pediatrics and sort of talking about application, uh, in a whole host of areas. And I think some of these examples sort of show how kind of pointers in a way right now. Um, so do you want to just mention sort of some of the other initiatives? We can't go through all of them, but yeah. Sure. Well, the slide that's up right now is about uh, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, or PCORI, and I think that it raises an interesting question about uh, how do you measure success in, in co-production? And uh, I'm, I was reflecting yesterday, I was uh, meeting with a group of people at uh, the Cambridge Health Alliance who are working on building a behavioral health patient-centered medical home for patients with severe and persistent mental illness. And we were talking about how will we measure success? And the idea that we came up with is that uh, we would actually ask a number of patients how they know when they're doing well. This recognition that everybody actually has their own internal markers of 
uh, of, of functional success and that uh, actually building an outcome measure that comes from our patient's lived experience is a, is a fundamental and important way of going about realizing uh, the idea of, of co-production. Mm -hmm. And I think every effort to try to do patient-centered outcomes uh, measurement is, uh, is, is a friend to this work. Um, one of the most I think radical and interesting examples uh, is is it comes from the National Health Service uh, in uh, in England, where they're experimenting with what they call personal health budgeting, uh, where a patient actually who is a recipient of a certain amount of health and social services uh, would, rather than getting services delivered uh, to him or her, uh, he or she would have an opportunity to sit with a uh, case manager and figure out how much money is the National Health Service going to be spending on their care, and they get to make decisions about what would be a useful kind of service for me. How do I want to spend the money that's allocated to my to my service uh, in such a way that it's really going to help me live the life that I want to live. Mm -hmm. Okay, those are great examples, and there are a few more in the slides. When you uh, download them, Open Notes is one, uh, work uh, going on at the Joint Commission, Speak Up, actually, that slide may not be in the Informed Medical Decision Foundation as well, so thanks, Marin. Um, I think it's important to yeah. recognize that there are a lot yeah. of there are a lot of friends uh, to this movement uh, related to co-production, and not all of them use the term co-production. I think it's important not to get into a, a language battle about what's what's the right term for this work. Is it co-production or patient-centeredness or patient experience? Or um, because I think that a, a lot of this work uh, is is aligned in its aims to try to improve the, the, the quality of the partnership. And each of the terms have their own um, kind of liabilities that, that come with them. I want to, um, I, I'm curious, uh, Christina, maybe I bring you in and maybe um, also Sarah, who was um, talking about the importance of structure. Uh, in many ways, the programs that we've done recently uh, that I referred to, we did some in January, we're talking about co-production now, and uh, lots of things are blooming. Um, and does there become a moment where one needs to begin to kind of structure these a little bit more so people can kind of see how we're doing in this space and evolving. And I don't know if that's something that's, you know, you're thinking about in the person-family-centered care area. Um, and lots of places where people can just jump on. It's like a little subway car, you know, come into this one and you can begin to learn about what matters in co-production and different kinds of conversations that you can have with patients. And any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that people are really getting excited. What we're seeing is a lot of individual excitement about this, and I think some of the tr sometimes the trickiest thing to do is turn that individual excitement into an organizational effort. Um, and so, being really thoughtful about the fact that the structure you use as an individual, if you get excited about something, is going to be different than the structure you use if you want this to happen across your whole organization. And I think our panelists will have thoughts on this as well. But, you know, certainly trying things out, running small tests, doing that at the individual level is great. But if you want to get to all of your patient population, you're going to need a really different structure. And I think being thoughtful about who is engaged in this and how it adds time and and burden, but also how you really track how it might save time and improve outcomes over the long haul as opposed to looking at a, a short effort. And 
Um, certainly we can share some, some kind of additional resources and thinking through that. But it's a great question because I think what we're seeing is individuals who jump on but then have a hard time turning that into organizational efforts. And certainly I'd be interested in how Marin and our other panelists think about that as well. Yeah, let me let me ask Sarah about that, and then I'll go to you, back to you, Maureen. Go ahead, Sarah. And we're we're yeah, at, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say we're about the five minute mark, so okay. um, uh, these will be sort of we'll kind of go around the horn one more time. But uh, Sarah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, I'll be very brief, and I actually think that was a very good response. But a related topic that I just think is another nuance that's really important to put out there, um, and again, very related, is one of the number one things that the 86 centers in our network say when we try to show them these examples of co-production and encourage them to build systems that allow it is, well, how do we know that co-production is leading to improvement? How do we know that if we're partnering in these new ways that it's actually making a difference on care? So that's one of our really big areas of focus right now spending a lot of time trying to figure out, number one, how do you quantify co-production? I mean, it is important to know how many patients and parents are involved in the system. It's great that we have, you know, 200 parents in our parent working group. But then the next level in order to kind of understand the impact it's making is to start to figure out some ways to look at, okay, what is actually being produced together? What is sort of the quality of what we're all building together so that we can in turn help our centers sort of make the business case for, and I hate to throw the business case into it, but that is one of the big questions we get, make the case for, okay, we need to invest some time and energy into this new way of working together. I will say lastly that one of the ways that, you know, so so the, the numbers are really important for measuring what might be happening here, but equally important is getting input from the people that are getting involved in co-producing about whether it's making a change in the way that they're relating to your system. And we've taken to using some indexes of kind of community involvement and actually polling our community and saying, you know, can you say yes or no to the following question? I feel like I know what my role is in this system. I feel like if there's a problem, I can be part of solving it. So I think we need to look outside of healthcare sometimes, you know, even looking in the education realms and some other areas to see some creative ways to really hear from the folks who we're bringing into these systems, co-producing with, whether it's having an impact on their experience and whether they feel like it's a meaningful level of involvement. Okay. Uh, thanks, Sarah. And also just a really warm thank you for uh, all your help with today's program and uh, connecting us to people and uh, being part of our discussion. Maren, uh, thoughts at all about this uh, sort of structuring, giving it shape, uh, <laughs> identifying what's working, results? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I would just remind us that we can't not co-produce. So it, it is really just an observation about the way in which our uh, outcomes are currently produced. So we don't really have a choice about that. And I would, I would just encourage us to look at all of our failures as co-productive failures and all of our successes as co-productive successes, because that, I think, uh, opens up new avenues for uh, trying to make things work better. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Maren. Uh, Julie and Jamie, kind of uh, thoughts, watch this space uh, kind of thing, uh, uh, what, what we might look to. Uh, sorry, we're getting kind of close uh, close to the hour, but uh, uh, Julie, let me start with you and then Jamie. Yep. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Jamie and I have talked about often, like, why does this work so well? And we, we're so excited to, you know, see where we can go from here. And a lot of times we do give credit to the fact that we, it's a relationship that's organically evolved over time. And um, one thing that I think really works is finding what 
that parents are really passionate about and what they want to be involved in and let them lead that piece. And, and that's where we've been so much more productive than having the medical team come up with a to-do list to say, hey, we need a parent to do X, Y, and Z. So I, I think it just means so much more and the parents feel so much more a part of our team if they're leading the efforts that we're focusing on. I think that's worked really well for us. Thank you, Julie, so much for being part of the program. Jamie, final thoughts. Yes, I would say that from my standpoint as a parent, I don't have great access to data on how this co-production has worked across systems. But what I do have access to, at least a limited scale, is anecdotal data, and I think it's really powerful. I think if you talk to the parents and providers who have done some co-production together and seen some success, all you have to do is hear a story or two, and it is inspiring enough that it should motivate broader circles to try it because once it's, once it's happened and been successful, it makes you sort of want to run wide open with it. So I would just encourage that, that anecdotal piece to continue and the storytelling to continue so that people can kind of hear this information and um, jump on board from that. Thank you so much. I'm just so thrilled, uh, Jamie and Julie, that together and individually that you were part of our, our program today and wishing you all the best in your co-production <laughs> collaboration. Very intentional. Kathy, uh, I, you've been nice and helpful and active on the chat too, I see. Uh, sort of final thoughts. You're in the midst of building this whole learning system. So I guess when we come back and talk to you, we can uh, find out more about it. But uh, any final remarks? For today, yeah, uh, I'm just really excited to. I think we're starting to fundamentally change the way people with CF and providers interact, and I, you know, I'm really excited that um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and our entire community is uh, on board for this effort. So stay tuned. I think you'll hear a lot more to come uh, in the cystic fibrosis realm right. soon. Fabulous. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. And I want to thank my entire panel today. Just outstanding. And the audience, you've been highly engaged. And uh, I hope you'll tell others about the program because it will be archived uh, by tomorrow morning. You can find it on IHI.org or on iTunes. And uh, you can share the podcast, uh, share the link on IHI.org. We'll have audio and resources and the chat and all the slides, every um, all those materials. Next up on WIHI on April 7th. We have a very interesting program uh, coming to us from IHI's Leadership Alliance. It's called Breaking the Rules. And uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot more because I just hope I can sort of pique your curiosity. Be very, very interested uh, in uh, what happens when people start really finding out what kinds of rules actually do people think exist in healthcare organizations. Are they for real? Are they assumptions? Are they myths? And maybe a few of them can be really swept aside uh, in favor. Talk about how to make space and more room for collaboration. It's it's all quite related. So thanks for tuning in uh, to that info on our website. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we used from our discussion today. There's a brief survey that pops up. We really appreciate your comments. Believe me, we pour over that survey trying to see what we did well and how we can improve. Um, if you don't happen to uh, 
uh, check us out on iTunes, think about doing so. You can subscribe under the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, you can write a review on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Great group helped me make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, Haley Ladd. Thanks also to Rick Van Sitters today who helped out on Twitter. As you know, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for a terrific program. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>